0: talk about that later
1: well are you how are you comfortable with talking about that stuff yeah anything well i just think with the whole the covid stuff i have danced around it i i I don't i mean opinions are one thing but i also believe that we we can share our lived experience with it because it's history in the making and everyone has a different experience with it um i just really try to be i always try to be gentle with respecting other people's point of view on it
0: yeah yeah mine's pretty serious because i because i work for the red cross blood service, like it's a medical department that I, Mm. you know, I run the ins and outs of, you know, blood and stuff to the donor centres. And we have to be really full on about protection and stuff. And when I see people not wearing a mask and shit, it does my head in because it's like if I bring it into the Red Cross, it shuts the Red Cross down. Now, if someone needs blood, they can't get blood. So that's my seriousness behind it. And when I see my mates that are like, oh, man, fuck this. And I'm like, oh, Christ, you fucking. Just like, it doesn't hurt you to be safe, you know what I mean? So, yeah, there you go. But, yeah, nothing's off limits, mate.
1: Yeah, it's, it's be- and, that's why I th- and that's why I think it's important for people to share their lived experience because it creates empathy. Like, yeah. the second I hear that, I go, oh, well, fuck, I never thought of that. That would suck.
0: Exactly, because it's my experience that you don't know, and I know other people that are like, well, yeah, but I can't do this and this. I'm like, okay, well, that's cool, but – you just got it, yeah. Anyway, my opinion is it's got to be for the greater good. You know what I mean? Like, it's not. I don't know. I try not to get too opinionated online about it because it gets. It can start, you know, Instagram wars that you don't want to deal with.
1: Yeah, it's are terrible rabbit holes to go yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do, do this, friend. All right, so, um, here we go. So this this is for Clementine and Otis. So if you're loving the podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify or whatever platform you like to listen on and leave a review. It just helps me to keep producing weekly episodes and also um, subscribe to the THT YouTube channel that we've just started. We have some carefully selected and fully filmed episodes by legendary skateboarding photographer Ryan Grant. Um, As always, shout out to our major sponsor of the podcast, Indosoul. Indosoul are leaders in environmentally friendly and conscious fashion. They recycle motor vehicle tires and turn them into footwear that's just rad. Like Indosol have distributors in the USA, Indonesia, Europe, Singapore, Japan and Australia. So go to Indosol.com, that's I-N-D-O-S-O-L-E.com and use code THT and you'll get a 15% discount and you'll be automatically directed to the distributor in your region when you use Indosol.com. Um, Next up, Kingpin Supply, best skate shop in the world, I reckon, locally owned, best bunch of dudes, I love them, they're the homies, Kingpin Stop carefully selected um, shoes, clothing brands, skate decks, hardware and more, so go to kingpinstore.com, that's K-I-N-G-P-I-N-S-T-O-R-E dot com and use code THT at checkout, get that 15% discount and support skateboarding. Lastly, uh, big thanks to our sponsors Crush Organics, um, I'm stoked on these guys, Crush Organics are the purveyors of the best full spectrum CBD oils and topicals, CBD is an amazing natural supplement, it's an amazing natural anti-inflammatory, it aids recovery, post-workout and, and improves our well-being overall. Like The research is out there now um, to support CBD products and it's now fully legal in Australia Um, as it is in most parts of the world. So head over to CrushOrganics.com, that's K-R-U-S-H-O-R-G-A-N-I-C-S.com and use code THT at checkout and get that epic 40% discount. And, man, it makes a massive difference, that discount. And there's fast shipping worldwide. Glenn, Scott, are you ready, brother?
0: (coughs) Yeah, sorry. I was holding a coffin the whole time.
1: (laughs) Sorry. Terrible happy talks. Terrible happy talks. Yeah, good to be man. Whoa. here. Whoa. Three, two, one. All right, do this. Today's guest is Glenn Scott. Glenn is a husband, father, skateboarder, musician, founder of the legendary skateboard uh, brand Criminal Skateboards in Australia. Former team manager of uh, legendary clothing brand SMP, founder of the epic swing band, the Louisville Sluggers, founder of the Rad Dads Club, and founder of the Tilt channel on YouTube. Damn, brother, you're, you're just such an entrepreneur, I love it. Um, born and raised in the northwestern north suburb of Sydney, Australia, Borkham Hills, Glenn is a larger-than-life character who is deeply significant in the history of Australian skateboarding. And many people would definitely agree with that. Today, Glenn is with me live from his home in Melbourne to share his journey, experiences, challenges, and hopes for the future. Mr. Glenn Scott, welcome.
0: Dude, I need you to like say that every time I enter a room. Fuck, that was epic. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I was found funny. a lot of shit, huh?
1: <laughs> you, found, you did find a lot of shit. <coughs> Maybe because like... You're an ideas man. Would yeah, boredom,
0: man. Boredom sinks in and you're sort of like, I can do that. I can do that. I think that's that's a lot of skateboarders do that shit though. Like how many skateboarders have started their own anything from footwear to clothing to skateboarding to, you know, branching off into music and yeah, I just think it's in the, the skateboard spirit that we don't settle and we want to do something new. So yeah, thanks for it's, having it's, me on, I man.
1: Mean, dude, I'm stoked to have you on. Yeah. Far out, man. Like. But I just want to go back to what you said. You said, oh, boredom. I'm like, was it boredom or was it passion and
0: creativity? Yeah, you're right. It wasn't boredom. It was wanting to do something else just to add on. Um, Obviously, the first thing I think I started was criminal after skating and seeing American companies and thinking, we've got rad skaters in Australia. America's never going to sponsor them. We should do our own shit. And that Mm. was it. And I just remember talking to – you know, the guy, all the Borkos and the guys that I grew up with, the Davo and Fish and, you know, everyone around, my brother and everyone around there, are like, I want to start a company. And they're like, yeah, cool. That was it. That was <laughs> That's all that had to be said. And we did T-shirts and then we finally found someone to buy boards off and got them off Omni and then it just built and built. And then Fish got involved and sort of propelled it to another level. And, you know, it went for like fucking eight years before we realised we can't make money on an skateboard company in Australia, but, but it was like, but it was sick, dude. The the shit that we did, like the the thing that I love about criminal and, and what other guys do, like you know, like the Mapstones are doing with XEN and stuff. It's not their job; it's their passion. They can't. No one's making money off it. You're doing it. I don't make money off rad dads. I'm doing it because it's a thing to do. And it keeps me current and keeps me involved and I can hook up the homies and I'm stoked to see someone wearing it. And, you know, it's exactly what we do with criminal. It's just, it's just the same, you know, skateboarders have – it, or people that I know in general have a habit of starting things that don't make money but keep going because they love doing it. So.
1: Yeah, and it's it's beautiful to watch. Um, and I want to I actually sort of tap into the Rad Dad stuff early. And my first question, <coughs> my proper question to you is, right, what makes a Rad Dad –
0: Someone that's not a shit dad. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: I, look, okay, I have a lot of... Okay, well.
0: Obviously, okay, I'll, I'll tell you how it started, right? Like, And just rad dad was just such an easy rhyme. Um, and I was like, man, I want to do... The thing that triggered it was just when my daughter was born in 2010 still skating quite regularly and stuff. And it was like, oh, okay. And we'd be going to the skate park and there was a lot of new dads and all our wives and kids were at home or doing something else, not necessarily at home, but we were out skating. And I'm like, we're skating. There's a playground there. Why don't we bring everyone together? And it was just simple, like, uh, you know, Reese and Darren White and some of these guys that I was hanging out with. It's like, right. And Potty from skateboard.com was like, let's go. Um, we're going to have a barbecue on this day. And it was actually my daughter's first birthday that the first Rad Dads Club Barbecue was around. I was like, I'm going to do Rad Dads Club Barbecue, so all the families can come and we'll hang out and it'll be sick, you know what I mean? And, and that was it. It was like, righto, so everyone brought their partners and everyone could hang out and the kids were playing and we, us old bastards were having a skate. I was like, this is cool. I was like, I'm going to do some T-shirts. Yeah, T-shirts, everyone wants a T-shirt sort of thing. And then it just built from there. I was like, okay, I'm going to register this as a company and just sort of make it happen. And the whole philosophy was behind I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a skateboard company. And I had a lot of mates that were like, oh, yeah, but I don't skate. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't matter. Like being a rad dad is not someone that does a board sport or, you know, shit that we're into. Being a rad dad is being a good father. That was the whole thing. And I've look, I know people that were like, oh, yeah, man, I want to get a T-shirt off you. I'm like, yeah, cool. And they're like, oh, can you spot me? And I'm like, no, dude. It's like, "I, I paid money for this. Buy it. You know what I mean? Plus a lot a couple of people I'm like you I don't say it to them but I was like you're not a rad dad I don't really want you involved in this <laughs> like you know 99% of the people that wear my product and support us are rad and I spot them and I've met many people internationally through gosh, social media is the best thing in the world because like you were saying when we were having a chat before Jeremy Ray is very keen. And if anyone knows skateboarding, they know Jeremy Ray. I literally reached out to him on Instagram going, dude, I'm doing this trick tips thing for Rad Dads. So, you know, started with Dave O and all that sort of thing. And I was like, would you do one? He goes, I've been wanting to do trick tips forever and no one wants to do them. And I'm like, are you kidding? That's fucking epic. <laughs> like, righto. And he goes, dude, Pacinita will be down as well. I was like, that's fucking epic. So that just started and it was just and then I was like, I'm going to reach out to some band members that I like to see if they want to rep some shit. And they're just sort of like, yeah, man, that's cool. I love what you're doing. It's like, this is nuts. And then, like I said, it all come back to just a bunch of dads being proud of being a rad with what they do. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, you don't have to surf or skate or motocross or BMX or any of that shit. You just got to be a good dad. And like I said, a lot of my mates that aren't in our world um, just sort of went, oh, okay, cool. So I can be a rad dad without being a skateboard or anything. I'm like, yeah, dude it's been a good father. So, and it's just blown up from there. You know what I mean? 10 years now.
1: I'm going to, I'm going to hear you. I'm going to hit you with another serious question. Hmm. Sorry, bro. What, what's a good father? Define it.
0: Someone that puts their kids first. Simple as that. Like, I'm look, I'm, we've got one, me and my wife, have got one kid, one and done, you know, one to, one to spare and none to share sort of thing is what we always <laughs> My brother's got three, my sister's got four, but like we're one and done. Um, but yeah, I think a good father or a rad dad or a rad parent in general is someone that doesn't matter how tired you are, what you're feeling sort of thing, you've got to put in the effort for your kid. Uh, look, when, I was, when my daughter was about three or four, still going out, um, seeing the boys on a Friday night or something like that, you know I mean? I'll go for a couple of drinks, but I always drove because I was like, well, I can only have three drinks and then I'll drive home. And they were like, oh man, hang around sort of shit. And I'm like, dude, my four-year-old daughter doesn't care that I'm hungover. I've got to be on point tomorrow morning at six o'clock when she's like, daddy, right? <laughs> like, so, and, and, and you know, and because they're not dads, they didn't get it. And I've seen a lot of people change from the non dad status to the dad status. And then they realize the complete difference of what you put forward and what you put in front of your priorities is your kid. And it's not, it's not doing, it, sorry, it's not doing it to say, yeah, I'm good at it. It's just, you just naturally do it. And that's what makes a good parent to me. Someone that just naturally puts their kid before anything else.
1: You mentioned, like, from going from non-dad status to dad status. How hard do you think that is for a lot of men? Do you think think it's a a lonely place?
0: Yeah, I think um, (coughs) not a lot of people talk about it enough. Um, I think a few people struggle. If you don't have – look, I've got an older brother who had three kids before me. I've got a sister who had four kids before me. Um, On my wife's side, she's got a cousin that's got a couple of kids. But it was like we sort of had – We had experience with being able to talk to someone about it if we needed to, but, like, not a lot of mates. I didn't have a lot of mates that we – I had mates that either had 10-year-old kids or were about to have a kid or, like, I was sort of in front of them. So there was no one in our – there's no one the same age as my daughter. They're either older or younger by quite a bit. So we were sort of on our own as far as that, but it wasn't – the only people – lucky I had my brother to talk to, my sister to talk to, you know what I mean, and me and my wife just worked it out. We were just like, right, we're going to do this – let's do it sort of thing. We read the books, you know what I mean? Like you just, I don't read books. I've read <coughs> two books in my life. One of them was to quit smoking and one of them was how to raise a kid. You know what I really? mean? And I was like, that's it. I don't, I'm not a reader. My family, my brother and sister, well, no, actually my sister's not, my brother is, but it's like, yeah.
1: So a quit smoking book actually helped you quit smoking. Yeah, you it actually it
0: did, though. yeah. Me and my wife quit. Before we had a kid, we were both heavy smokers. I smoked my Amazing. whole life and it was like, we've got to stop. She did quit line and it worked. It didn't work for me because um, I not know, it just didn't work. And then uh, um, Simon from Convict bought me a quit smoking book and he gave it to me. And it was sort of like that was the guilt trip in the back of my mind. It's like, well, he's bought me this book. So I'll let him down if I don't follow it through, sort of thing. And I've bought that book for other people and it's worked as well. It's sort of something that you pass on, sort of shit. But um, yeah, and it, it worked. Have so a that's, a
1: rad, that's a rad dad move.
0: Exactly And that's it And I had to do that before We were like We're not going to be that's, It's just our thing I'm not judging anyone But we weren't going to be smoking parents You know what I mean oh, I was straight. like I've never been big, Like my wife's not a big drinker I've never I've, You know I've drunk people under the table With the best of them But like I'm not mm-hmm. I don't drink every night I don't drink at home I could go for months Without a drink And not even notice Sort of thing But um, that was it It was like Well just we, we don't need to be smoking While we're having
1: kids yeah, man. Uh-huh. Brad dad move, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the drinking thing because I, when I knew that we are planning a family, I made a decision to stop drinking. Yeah. And so I haven't had a, I I haven't drunk alcohol for years and my kids have never seen me with a drink. Yeah, right. And at first I didn't really like think much of that. I was like, oh yeah, whatever. But now it's like a little thing that I really prize possession that I hold close to me. Like it's now this new I don't know, like I'll never let – my kids will never see me with a drink. I don't know why I care about it, but for me personally, it's just something that's actually motivating me to, to, to maintain. Yeah, I think
0: it's – but it's a, that's it. It's a good move. And like you say, it's a, it's a rad dad moment because you've done something for your kids and before you even had them. You know what I mean? Look, I've never even, I've never even thought about the smoking thing before, but I quit smoking a year before we had our daughter and my my wife was like 6 months ahead of me sort of thing and it was like well that's what we're going to do you know what I mean it was like that was that was the plan so yeah i think people do a lot of shit that they don't realize they do it subconsciously that they don't realize that they're they're actually doing it for their family or their kids and to maintain it is the best thing so
1: yeah so would you say that like rad dads is just like almost like a you know you're trying to build a community you know based on these philosophies um and like the fact that you've, you know, recruited like people like Pat Shanita and Jeremy Ray and Davo and Darren Caney, yeah. like I don't know, man. Like it's just it's so cool you got those guys on board and I really believe that a lot of men struggle with letting go of those past behaviours when they tr- transition from the nod dad to the dad. I think it's a it's a very strange time for men. And I that's that's what actually attracted me to your to your whole philosophy and um yeah, man, I love it.
0: Yeah, it's it's because I've, I've seen, you know, dads have trouble and change their ways, you know what I mean? And to the point of like, no, okay, I'm not drinking anymore or I'm not getting drunk anymore is a big difference, you know what I mean? Like I know people that drink and can maintain and they're fine, you know what I mean? I know people that, you know smoke weed every day and they wouldn't function without it sort of thing but they're they're fine that they're they're perfectly functional sort of thing but like i've seen dads that have gone i was a pile and now i've pulled my shit together and because i've got a i can't it's not me anymore it's me and the offspring you know what i mean so they gotta get their shit together and they do you just i just think people do like i don't think it's a big thing that they have in the back of their head that they're going right? right i've got to do this it's like you just do it you know yeah, I mean? man,
1: so. you just do it. I love it. So, listen, you grew up in an area of Sydney called Borkham Hills, for those that aren't unaware, because we do have people that listen overseas. Yeah. And I, I've always noticed over the years, because I'm quite good friends with your older brother, Hank yeah. Scott or, or Frank Scott, um, just one of my – he's actually like a – he's one of my heroes, you know, growing up and, and still is in a lot of ways. Um, there's always been this level of Borco pride, Okay, so can we tap into? I've got that my a little postcode bit?
0: Tatted on me somewhere. Just yeah. okay.
1: <laughs> my question to you is, like, why do you think that was inspired by by that area? What, what was what was it? What was it about your childhood in that area?
0: I don't know if it's the like where it is. Like, it's just a suburban town. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing. It could be in the middle of suburban America, or you know, country London, or wherever. It's just it's. When we were growing up there, it was young families. It was similar to where I am now in, in Victoria. It's like, you know, a lot of houses getting built and built up area. But it was just the thing that, I mean, the Borco pride, it was it was skateboarding. You know what I mean? Like I started skating. My brother got a, a skateboard at 12 and I got, I started skating his board and he's two years older than me. So I started skating at 10. And then I got my board at the end of the year. Um, And it was just – and then I was – me and my mate Wally, who I went to school with, we were we hung out with my – yeah, Wally did. Yeah, exactly. If people don't know, me and Shannon have known each other for like 400 <laughs> years um, because we're the Borco boys and they're the Nara boys and it was all yeah. it was all love. Totally, yeah. um, but that was it. It was like we just found <laughs> – I the only person I hung out from school was Wally because that's who I skated with. And outside of school, I only hung out – he was the only guy I knew from school. Because we skated together. So all the guys that we hung out with and the the Borco crew and everything were dudes from different schools and different age groups, but we found each other. Like Davo, I met Davo at a car park shopping center at Borco, And I was like, dude, you're a skateboarder. He's like, dude, you're a skater. Sweet. And it was like, that was it. Oh, we'll see you here tomorrow after school. You know, there's no phones and shit. It was just like, meet you. And then- Oh, cool. Oh, what are you doing on the weekend? Oh, we're going to go skate here. Cool. Oh, I've got all these little kids that I skate with. And it was like, sweet. And the crew just built and built. We had one stage, because we had a couple of backyard ramps and stuff. There was like 50 skaters in Borco. We were just like, insane. Like, we had a, a, a mini ramp in the park um, that a dude just built out the back. No permission or anything like 12 foot wide mini four foot high and it was like we started skating street and then someone got a mini ramp oh cool let's skate mini and then someone built a vert ramp. oh cool let's skate vert it was like whatever was in front of you but our crew just built and built then over the years people dropped off and stuff but our crew was always the solid you know, the Jeff and the Russ and the Frex and the Fish and the Hank and the Devo. And, you know, it was always that straight crew. And then there was the younger crew under us that came up as well, like John Owen Beastman and all these dudes that are, you know, like just artistic geniuses and musicians and stuff, but all skateboarders. So it was like every time someone did good out of Borko, we were stoked. Davo became Davo. you know what I mean? Like one of the best skateboarders in, that Australia's ever produced. And he became a city boy, you know what I mean? We were just like, yeah, he's Borko, you know what I mean? And it's like, he's got Borko tattooed on him, you know what I mean? It's like... It's um so the pride thing wasn't really where we were from. It was just a group of dudes into the same thing. Same music, same skateboarding. You know, what I mean, we looked out for each other and we still do to this day look out for each other. So,
1: as an outsider looking in over the years, I could just see the magic in your crew, yeah. you know. Um, and like you mentioned, like someone like Davo, I mean, Kerry Fisher as well.
0: Success stories, man. Yeah.
1: I mean, these guys were the most, for those that are unaware, like the most prolific. Um, skateboarders of, of that generation and yep. then continue to be and made such an impact on Australian skateboarding um, that it's so like there must have been something in the water in Borco, you know? No,
0: <laughs> man. There's a lot, and it's funny too, like we always, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of famous people from Borco that people don't know about that have nothing really? to do with skateboarding. Um, yeah, like um, Timmy Rogers from UMI, lead singer of UMI. You know that. The, the cockroaches who became the Wiggles, Borco. Betty Cuthbert Who won the first gold medal In the 1936 Olympics Or whatever Borka So There's, there's one, one of our Not so proud moments Is Hillsong Churches from Borka Yeah <laughs> but, um, but that's it, it was like, It's so funny It's like All these people In the Borka Mill Shire Were like Man there's so many Like that dude Peter Sterling man Played for Parramatta Lived Dude. up the road from me, Borco. So, Unbelievable. yeah. So, there there's a lot, whenever that, that's like, yeah, Borco Pride when it comes in. But like I said, the Pride thing was just skateboarding. And the rad thing I think about that 90s golden era that we were in, we had the Borco crew, we had the narrow boys, we had the Canberra crew, the Manly boys, you know what I mean? The Queensland Gold Coast crew. Like, and we all got on because of a simple little wooden toy that we all rode. And it was like, and it's brought us to this today, you know what I mean? We haven't spoken to each other for bloody years, and it's like we were hanging out yesterday.
1: Yeah, and isn't that interesting? Because um, your brother Hank, I just want to talk about yeah. him a little bit. He's obviously from Borco, hundred percent Borco, but yeah. he he was posted uh, for his work uh, in Nara, and yeah. that's how we connected with Hank. And he sort of became this catalyst. And um, you know, he and I feel like that those years, like we had that magic in our crew as well, like a lot of skateboarders do. We just these golden years of development and passion for this you know, common common interest uh, just brings us all together. So, yeah. And then your brother was in between two of those crews.
0: Yeah, he so. was a good sort of anchor point. I remember going to hour on weekends. It was like, oh, we're going to hour on the weekend sort of thing. And it was like, okay, oh, yeah, sweet. And we do the same with Canberra. We'd hook up with, you know, Todd and Potty and, and yeah. Fowley and all them down in Canberra because it was like, well, it's only a three-hour drive, let's go. No, no accommodation or anything. You just slept wherever you slept. And it's like we went to now. It's like, where are we going to stay? It's like, well, it depends how messed up we get on Friday night where we're going to stay. Yeah. And then we'll skate all day Saturday, and then we'll stay Saturday night, and then we'll skate all day Sunday. and then we'll drive home.
1: Yeah.
0: And it was just like, yeah, just that common ground.
1: Well, what was school like for you, Glenn?
0: Pretty straightforward. I, um, you- I was, was, was a bit of a sports nut when I played, um, when I grew up. I played football, like rugby league for my whole life. And probably still would have been playing except I had a car accident and damaged my back when I was 15. Um, when uh, On the way to a football game and I, yeah, was in a car, my mum was driving, flipped the van, ruptured three discs in my lower back and spent year 10 pretty much in and out of bed um, and then couldn't play football ever again. And skateboarding, I could sort of manage what I could do and what I couldn't do with skateboarding. But um, but yeah, school. I just you know, I had a great upbringing. My parents were hardworking. My dad was a truckie from day dot, and he was, he's the, the raddest dad ever. He's the hardest working dude I ever met in my life, and not even just dad pride. I could brag about him to other people's dads, going, "Your dad, yeah, but my dad does this, and my dad does this, and my dad's a fucking champion." And it was always we were always so stoked about how rad our parents were, and I don't my dad left us a few years ago, but at um, my mum's my birthday, was two days ago, you know what I mean? And she's just the, the rock of the family sort of thing. But we had a great, we never wanted, I remember talking at my dad's funeral going, we never wanted for anything and we weren't rich by any means. We were, you know, not even middle class, but we never wanted for anything. Dude, I grew up riding horses and motorbikes and playing football. I never asked, you never think, oh, where does my footy boots come from? Where did I get my skateboard from? They just they just fucking appear, you know what I mean? So yeah, my school and school was sweet. I I was I was friends with everyone. I didn't I, I, I didn't like bullies, so they were you know taught lessons every now and then. Um,
1: Why? How, how do you deal with bullies? Just tell how them. Did you, sorry, how did you deal? How with How
0: did bullies? I deal with? Oh, well, it was a lot different when you were a kid. You could just step to them and you know so stop picking on. Because what's being a, being a bully is the stupidest fucking thing in the world. It's like, you're picking on someone because they're different to you. I'm like, come on, moron. But um, because I wasn't dumb at school, but I mucked around a bit. So the teachers used to get the shits with me as well because I was in like advanced maths and English and me and my mate Todd, but then we'd get sent out of class for fucking around. And then we'd be like, yeah, but we just got 96% out of that test. So you can't really hate on me too much. They used to get the shits with us, but it was like... No, I don't know. We just bully, we just dealt with bullies the way we would. A lot of them, we they'd try and play football, and I was a really good football player, so you know I can tackle pretty hard and piss people off. And I've, I've had people sort of come up swinging after a tackle. I would just be laughing at them, going, "Are you kidding, dude? I tackled Sun, you." Right? No, no, I was I was in the centres, man. I was like halfback and five eight. I was a skinny little kid. That's, I'm much different yeah. now, Sean.
1: Yeah, I- <laughs> Well, you know, uh, the reason I sort of mention that is because like my perspective of you is really different because, the f- you know, I'm going to recount a story and you, you don't even know this. The first time I ever seen you was at Fairfield Mini Ramps yep. and I was 12 years old and I'd caught the 518 train from Nara, and we were skating and we were like the first people there at like 9am because we'd been on the train for yeah. almost three hours to get there. And I never remember you turned up by yourself and you didn't warm up. You had, you had your pads on and your helmet on, and you did a melon over the six foot spine, like in your first run. And I and you don't even know this. And me and my friends went, Holy fuck. And I'll never forget. Cameron Guzev said to me, Hey, that's Glenn Scott. And we're like, No way, that's Glenn Scott. Like that's we had one of those creepy, moments, dude. dude. Fuck off, you that's did. crazy. You did. And it was like Fairfoot mini ramp. And we just went, and so for me as and when I was 12 man I looked like I was about like 8 like, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. tiny. And to me you were always this larger than life and really like um stocky. I always seen you as like a stocky character. <laughs> yep. So you played 58 and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Hey?
0: yeah, I was in I was in those I was never tall enough to play in the forwards or anything. But I was fast. Like when I played footy I was really fast and um Limbo. I played for like Parramatta and New South Wales and Australia. And I always played in the backs because I was too small. I even had my, when we played for Parramatta and I played under 15s and under 17s for Parramatta, played upper grade for under 17s. And I remember my captain for my team, who was the lock, who was the captain for the Parramatta team, he said, don't go for halfback or five eight because you won't get it. You're too small. Go for fullback because there's no good fullbacks. I was like, all right, fuck. So I became fullback. And it was like, because I was a you short You were fast? I was fast, but I was short. I'm only right. five foot seven now. I was probably five foot when I played footy. It was like- Interesting, Yeah. Eh? So that was, yeah. I, I, I'm i a, a big rugby league fan. I have been for years. Um, like I said, I had a contract for Parramatta up until my 21st birthday, but all, you know, have a car accident, ruin your back, and that just sort of changes shit.
1: Man, I didn't know that. That's heavy. Yeah.
0: Like, so you I'm guys a- wouldn't have seen me until like I was out of school, like 16 sort of thing, 16, 17, and I was skating. But I knew, my, like I couldn't, you know, like I, I won a, a skateboard comp the week before I hurt my back and I was lawn, like jumping from launch ramps onto flat ground and stuff. And I couldn't do that shit anymore. I couldn't ollie off big stairs anymore. It was like I was skating with Dave and Fish and, you know, they're ollieing down 10, and 11 stairs and I'm like, man, I'll stick to six and that's my limit. But it just, but no one knew except for the Borcos because they obviously went through it with me. Um, no one knew that because we didn't know anyone before then. You know what I mean? So just people, I just assumed I thought that 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 was my limit, sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like I can't ollie down anything bigger than six stairs because that's his limit. But it was like the limit was my injury.
1: That so. amazing, bro. You know, I'm not a rugby league guy, but my my father uh, is a fanatical Parramatta fan, and I went to. I actually he took me to the first ever um, Parramatta game at the at the new Parramatta Stadium yeah, yeah. In back in the day, and that era of like Peter Sterling, Brett Kenny. Uh, Eric Groth Sr. Yeah, I mean, Mick Cronin, um, all those cats. Mick Cronin, yeah. I mean, like, do you feel like that was the golden era of rugby league? Is it, it was. was that- Why Did- is
0: it the 90s is the golden era of fucking everything? You know what I mean? Late 80s, early 90s was it's the best hip-hop, it's the best skateboarding, it's the best rugby league teams, it's the best, best fucking everything, best, best, best snowboarding. Um, but, yeah, um, it's funny because when we played for Parramatta, we trained with – the A squad. So I was training with Stirlo and Brett Kenny and stuff. And I'm not a Parramatta supporter, man. I'm a Tigers supporter. i main Tigers till I die. And Parramatta was my enemy team. But because I was in that ear in that um, dem- in fucking location, yeah. I yeah, had to play for Parramatta. Door, yeah. yeah. So I've got Parramatta fans that were like, "Are you kidding?" And I'm like, "Dude, I've got all the old tracksuits and shit that people would wet themselves over." And it's like, nah. Just To me, it was like, oh, yes, Sterlo, you're good, mate. Cheers. Like, I'd rather play with Benny Elias and Steve Roach from the Tigers, mate. You know what I mean? But it was insane to play with those guys. Like, We played State of Origin under-15s, and we were training with the Queensland team. So it was like Mao Meninga and Sam Bakko and Wally Lewis, that's who we were training with. And it was just sort of like, these guys are fucking legends. And it was insane. Look, when I, I didn't think anything. when I, I didn't not think anything of it then. I thought, oh, this is cool. But looking back on it, I'm like, Dude, I trained with those guys and they're rugby league legends. And look, like you say, if if people aren't into rugby league, they don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But any sport, if you pick any sport that you do and the best people of that sport, that's who I was training with. So it doesn't matter if it's AFL or NHL or fucking hockey or basketball or whatever, that's who I was training with. And it was insane. And just the fact that clubs would let dudes do that was just fucking cool.
1: See, I w- see, I wonder how much of an impact that had on your mindset um, in other aspects of, aspects of your life. You know, when you when you're training at an elite level, you know, did that mindset transfer into how you did life in general?
0: Probably, probably just like because you had people to look up to. Um, look, like I said, I looked up to my dad because he was a fucking beast, and he played rugby union when he was growing up. Um, but yeah, I think I think that. I think always having someone to look up to whether it was in skateboarding or rugby league or music or whatever made you better at what you did and give you more commitment to it. it's like oh man that guy can do it I can do it sort of thing so I think going through life I've always had that attitude I think now that I'm saying it I think the whole thing of me founding these companies is because I thought well they can do it we can do it sort of shit so I started criminal because skateboarding was in America well why can't it be in Australia you know what I mean? And like Westy and Boglio started time at the same time, sort of thing. And people trying to pin us against each other. And we were like, "We're actually good mates, but let's play off this shit." You know what I mean? Like, but um, and that's it. It's like I'm starting a band. Well, why can't I start a swing band in Australia? Because no one's playing original swing music. I want to do it. I played in hardcore bands and shit, and I was like, "Everyone done that." So it was getting that mentorship from early on just showed you that you could do it. I guess. Like, I'm not even realising this until I'm actually saying it to you, dude. So you don't even think about this shit until it comes out in conversations.
1: Yeah, man. It's amazing. I just – I want to move on to the, your yep. music your music career, but um, I just want to go back. For those that aren't aware, like, that era of rugby league, it was when the game was way less regulated. There was no video referees. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was live, I,
0: man. It was live. You know what I mean? It was no hmm. – you couldn't go back on a decision.
1: Do you think technology's ruined ruined sport in yeah. terms of that aspect yeah. of it?
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways it has. In a lot of sports it has. Like I, like I said, I'm a diehard Tigers fan. Where why coming thirteenth? Oh. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no pride in being a Tigers fan. It's like we have there's there's threads with all the Canberra boys and stuff at the moment on Instagram, and it's always like you know Tigers are looking good, Glenn. It's like no, they're fucking not. Like just taking the piss. But um, but it's like yeah. I'm watching a game, we get a try, and then the video referee comes in and says, nah, we've made it." No one's complained about the decision on the field, but then the video ref, because they've got nothing to do, is like, oh, we're going to pull up something here and reverse this. And it's like, oh, fuck, just, it just stops the game. Fowley was telling me about it. So Jim Fowley, good mate of ours from Canberra, um, he was saying, he was at a live game in Canberra, and the Canberra scored a try, and the place goes nuts. And then the, the video ref goes, oh, no, nah, we're going to decide against that. And he goes, the whole crowd just dropped down. Like, oh, God, we just took the wind out of our sails. Like, yeah, I think there's too much technology and not enough responsibility on the people running the game to make the decision. You know what I mean? So.
1: I also think, like, it's – it it doesn't breed good referees. So, you you know, you get these people that over time become, like – there's a history of, of good refereeing in their family and they've got referee pride and, yeah. you know, they become – all of a sudden these amazing referees emerge. But it seems like they've just been, I guess, uh, disempowered. You yeah. know,
0: and- well, they, 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 they don't have the responsibility that – like Greg Hartley was the best ref in rugby league. I don't know a single referee's name now, but I remember a dude from the 80s and 90s because he was the go-to ref and no one fucked with him. He made a decision, you were like, yeah, cool. Now, referees make a decision, and the captors walk up and go, yeah, fucking off your head. And it's like, go to the bunker, and I want to dispute this, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, Christ, okay, I'm going to go get a pie and a beer now because they're going to take 15 minutes to make a decision about a fucking knock on. Like, it's just, uh, yeah, technology can ruin games. Um, yeah, that's it. No, there's no <laughs> but. <laughs>
1: I was like, waiting for something profound here. No, oh, yeah, no, no, I couldn't think
0: of anything. That was it. That's no, it's true though.
1: Yeah. This, so when you, um, so, you know, you finished you finish your schooling, high schooling in in uh, Borkham Hills. Yeah. Tell me about that that first year out of school, that transitional period, like, you know, what did you do?
0: I started, well, actually going back to Wally again, Wally got a, an apprenticeship as a sprinkler fitter. And I was like, the fuck is a sprinkler fitter? And it's like five sprinklers in the roof, right? Yeah, you're shaking your head going, what the fuck's a sprinkler fitter? So... And he goes, dude, I'm making this much money a week. And I was like, sick, I'm going to do that. And I literally applied for an apprenticeship and I got an apprenticeship as a sprinkler fitter. And I was like, okay, let's just do this. And we can skate. You know what I mean? Like I can make money. I could skate. I wasn't even driving at the time. I was like 15 going on 16 sort of thing. And um, after a year of doing that, I couldn't because it was just ruining my back. I was coming home every day and going straight to sleep at like three o'clock or lying on my bed at three o'clock. And my mum's just like, you can't keep doing this. Like you can't move you know what I mean like you're skating on a weekend but like you you can't move, you can't play footy and this is ruining your back so for a year I did that and then I was just like I can't do this anymore and it was really ruining my back made me actually pick up a video camera um so I got rid of that and then just started doing random anything jobs from you know I used to load washing machines onto the back of trucks by by fucking hand I was talking about this at work the other day, like the difference in how from the 90s, early 90s to now, we used to load washing machines over our head height by hand into the back of trucks. No forklift and shit, just like lift it up, two dudes lift it up and then lift it up on your shoulder and then push it up the top and then it was like fucking insane. So, but yeah, work-wise, I did all that sort of shit and then I got into, you know, working at a skate shop Um just anything you could sort of stay involved in and um, and then another skate shop and then another surf shop and then ended up at s p
1: Going back to you, you were saying about the liability on the work site yeah. that, that, now, that now exists and it didn't back then. Do you think we've become overregulated?
0: Uh, a little bit, yeah and no. I, I'm big on safety. I always think it doesn't hurt to be safer. Like there's nothing if if you're over safe, it doesn't affect anything. If you're under safe, you can get hurt. So why not be over safe? And if people go, Oh, this is a bit much, it's like, yeah, but it's not hurting you to do that. You know what I mean? So I'm a big but especially now in the position that I'm in now, I'm a big believer in safety on site and looking after staff and you know, things need to be regulated in that aspect. But like, fuck, dude, back in the day would we just like you'd throw shit at people like you know, like I was driving a forklift for years before I even had a forklift license. You know what I mean? Because it was like, oh, jump on there, mate. Off you go. And it was just like fucking, you know, it was insane the shit that – I can't believe there wasn't more deaths back in the 90s and 80s and even earlier before my time.
1: But that's, that's the point. There wasn't.
0: No, know? there wasn't, right? Because it was like you didn't – I remember being scared on building sites going, I can't mess this up because I won't live it down. If I do something – I was hanging out – Bloody on ladders, hanging out windows, putting pipes in and stuff on like six and ten story buildings. Fucking no, no harnesses or anything. Like instant death. You know what I mean? It's like, but you just did it. Otherwise, you'd be just branded a pussy and you wouldn't be able to fucking survive.
1: But also, you become more personally accountable for your behaviours and actions. Yeah, true. You were forced to. Whereas I feel like sometimes, and don't get me wrong, safety should be paramount. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to like get into that debate. But I do believe that uh, there needs to be more per- personal accountability and I just see a lot of people just really ready to blame others and organisations when they when they make a mistake. For
0: their wrongdoings, yeah, yeah. I, I don't I, – I have that a lot. And I, we – you know, there's there's terms and stuff that I use with my partner at work that, you know, we don't really use out loud. But, you know, there's always a teaspoon of concrete, put that in your coffee in the morning to harden up sort of shit. And it's like – it's – there's always something – my my thing that I always use for guys who are like, oh, that's bullshit and blah, blah. And it's like, you could be hammering rocks for a living and you're not. So be happy with what you're doing because you've got it way better than other people. And all of a sudden they pull their head in and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah, yeah, sort of thing. But, yeah, you're right, people do blame because now it's so regulated and it's, it's so easy to pass the buck and be like, well, I didn't do that. That was because this wasn't set up properly. And it's like, oh, oh fucking take some responsibility, dude.
1: Yeah, I, I say that too sometimes, and I think is that just an old old school mentality? I think and it is. Do I sound like like a like a a complaining sort of old guy? But I don't know.
0: Like I, my like I said, my dad was a truckie, right? And I deal with truck drivers every day now, and I and some of them are like hardcore old school dudes. But my dad would be turning over in his grave to see what he has to go through now just to deliver something. Where back in the day, it was like just you get in there and fucking do it. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. yeah. It's really uh, it's really different.
1: Do you think that regulation stresses people out? Uh,
0: I, I think it depends what you focus on. I think people will, can get stressed out by it, but they shouldn't be focusing on something because it's people, no one likes change. You know what I mean? Like something changes and they're like, I never used to do it like that. Like I used to do it like this. It's like, yeah, but we can't do it like that anymore. You know what I mean? We can't do that shit. We've got to do it this way. Um, I embrace change. I think people that don't embrace change are the ones that are going to suffer in the long run because, fuck, dude, look, 20 years on, we're, we're doing things a lot differently than we used to do. It's not killing us. <laughs> you know what I mean? We get, we're getting on with it.
1: I love that you said that. I love that you said that you embrace change. Yeah. It's just a rad, it's a rad thing to say. you got it, man.
0: Oh. You're only going backwards if you can't. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I'll be, I'm will be 90s till I die and I'll never say that the music today is better than it was back then and all that sort of shit. But I embrace change. I Me and my daughter have arguments over music all the time. Whenever she gets into something that I'm into, I'm fucking stoked. But then she'll listen to something and I'll go, how can you listen to that and listen to what I'm listening to? And then, you know, I was like, well, that's, that's her era. That's going to be her legacy. You know what I mean?
1: Dude, Nirvana came out of our era. I know, dude. You know, were you actually were you at that big day out when yep. Nirvana played yep. back in ninety? It was it ninety two. Ninety two. Really? How unbelievable yeah, is that?
0: That was insane. That was it was. Um, that was one of the craziest things. I was at the Horden Pavilion. I was in the mix of it, and I was just and I got up to the side and just watching the whole dance floor bounce like it was a wave was insane, insane.
1: Wow! Big day out. They were a real massive part of Australian um, culture and I really feel like s- skateboarding got showcased at those yeah. events every year, um, you know, back in the early 90s and beyond. Um, you know, how much, how important were Big Day Outs for you as a musician and skateboarder?
0: Oh, they were everything when they first started, and we were so stoked when you know that Sydney Pride came in because the first few years they were only in Sydney, and then when they went around the country, we were like, "Oh man, fuck! We 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 were the only ones that had that shit." But it was insane. Like you go to it, it was the first time I was like eighteen or something, and um, we saw Nirvana and Helmet and Soundgarden, and then you could see like local bands like the Meanies and so on, all on the same bill. And Alan Peterson was skating, and you were just sort of like the fuck's going on like it, it, it was insane that we had a shitty little skate set up um <coughs> and we, you could go see a band it's like okay i'm hanging out with cam Goosef at the moment because he's about to switch ollie the bonnet of a car which was insane people don't know cam Goosef is the fucking king of now in far as as far as our skateboarding world goes um And that was a good meeting place as well where we'd go to gigs and you wouldn't see anyone, but then you'd like, you'd see them at a festival and you'd see skateboarders. It was like, Oh, the, the Canberra crew's coming up. The Nara crew's coming up. The Manly boys are going to be there. The dudes from Nala, like everything's coming in. And I'm sure every state had the same. The Queensland crew would have all their Brisbane and sunny coast and everything had come together. And it was a meeting point to every skater could get in. You could, I'm not in the demo, fucking bullshit. Get your board, have a skate sort of thing. It was like, it was just a great, meeting point, and it was great for music. And we'd see bands that you wouldn't – I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm sort of into Soundgarden. i watch them live, and I'm like, now I'm a massive Soundgarden fan because live, they're amazing. I could – a live performance mm. would, like, you know, kill a band for me if they were no good as, like, can't watch that band anymore because they were shit live. Offspring, perfect example. When Offspring came out and then that whole 90s punk era, way into Offspring, didn't see him in Sydney, went down to Wollongong to see him play – and I was, it was literally like listening to the CD, and I was like, these guys are shit. And I never listened to them again. And it was like, and that was before their massive Smash album. That was the Ignition album, which was in every skate video. And I was like, these guys are fucking boring. And that was it. Never. So for
1: those, for those that don't know, this was when there was only really one um, summer music festival. That was it, Big Day Out. That was it. Was it. Yeah. January.
0: There was nothing else.
1: That was it. And like, yeah. And then uh, after that, soon followed uh, the Vans Warp Tour. Yeah. That was now, a different world. different world, but it, it heavily focused on on more of a punk music vibe yep. and also skateboarding. And I know your band, the Louisville Sluggers, used to play at that event. Yep. Um, can we talk about the Louisville Sluggers, like what inspired you to, to get a swing band happening in yeah, Australia, right. which was so random in the early 90s. Yeah,
0: people were like, or what do you mean? I, for me to explain a swing band to my mates and stuff, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? So – Growing up in my household, my parents were very cool. Um, my dad was a gangster from Balmain, mate. Like, he just, you know, they had great – they didn't have massive album collection, but they had great taste in music. So we grew up with all these crooners like Sinatra and everyone in the background playing. You know I mean? That's what we listened to. It was like the big band stuff. And we'd be like, oh, God, Bobby Darin again? Like, I fucking – I don't want to hear this shit. And then growing up, we started to appreciate it a bit more. Um, so – Warp Tour First warp Tour At Manly Royal Crown Review Played Which were Undoubtedly the biggest Swing revival band Of the world Um, Me and my sister Had heard about them We were like Yeah I heard about This swing band Because my sister Was cool as shit She was into rockabilly And she got me Into a lot of music That I didn't know Existed because She was three years Older than me she took me to my first club when I was a kid, well, I was a kid, 15, sorry, mum, when I was 15, going to bands with my 18-year-old sister, um, but it got me into a lot of music through people that she knew, you know what I mean? So we're at Warped Tour, and I was like, I want to see this band, they wear like zoot suits and shit, and they're really cool, I haven't heard them, but I want to see them. So they come on stage, and it was like one o'clock, and it was dusty, Curl Park, the skate park, like the vert ramp, and everything's in the background. And these guys come on and they were fucking incredible, like just electrifying, man. It was like Eddie was in a full pinstripe suit, the horn section and all this sort of shit. And people were going nuts. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is this is us, man. Me and my sister looking at each other going, this is what we grew up on. And I was like, right. And I said, Why can't, and then, you know, festival was amazing. And, you know, Pennywise played and all that sort of shit. And then a couple of weeks later, I was like, man, I'd love to do a band like that. And my sister's like, well, do it. It's your fucking problem. Just do it. And I'm like. Okay, because I was playing in hardcore bands and, you know, it was easy to yeah. just play drums in a band. It was like, oh, these are my mates, we're going to play hardcore because that's what we listen to, punk rock and hardcore. I was like, all right, I want to start a band. And it took a while, probably that whole year, um, which I think was 89. No, that's no, that's not right. 99, fucking 89, listen to me. Um, <laughs> 98 or 99 and um, – we were advertising for musicians and we got some musicians together and some fell apart and some didn't. We had a few that had the right vision and we were like, yeah, we're going to do this. Is We're going to project it forward. Um, I need a, a good keyboard player. And I had, I had a singer in mind who was a girlfriend of a, a mate of ours, Pete, and um, we got her and it was like, what are we going to do? And I remember advertising for a bass player and a dude rang my sister who was, run, who was managing us and he said, I'm a bass player, but that's not why I'm ringing – that's not why I'm ringing – I'm a booking agent. If you can get your shit together by November, I'll put you on warp tour next January. And we were like, uh, okay. So <laughs> we were like, right. And this was like probably June or July or something. And we we're like, fuck, okay. So we we ended up getting a band together, got a, you know, double bass, keyboard, guitar, two-piece horn section, a singer and me on drums. And it was like, we played and we were just practicing and practicing and writing songs. So I didn't want to be a cover band. I was like, everyone's like, oh, what covers are you going to do? It was like, fucking covers. What are you talking about? Like, I'm into originals, man. Every punk band I played in, we played our own songs. It was like, and was, then we sort of realized we're pretty unique as far as no one's doing originals. People were doing the jazz standards and swing standards and there was the rockabilly dances and all that sort of shit. But no one was doing their own shit. And we're like, no, man. So we started writing our own songs. I think we had about eight songs. Um like six were originals, two were covers or whatever. And we played one gig in Surrey Hills in Sydney. We drank the pub and we just invited all our mates on a Sunday afternoon. We drank the pub out of alcohol and our there. next gig, you were there, right? Cause and, everyone and I, was fucking there that day. It was remember, insane.
1: The reason I remember is cause I remember you had the place jumping. It was fucking packed, everyone, right? Everyone was going off and you, and you played your songs and you went, Hey, listen, we've only got eight songs. We're really sorry. Like, we're That's just it. Gonna start again. Yeah. I can't and believe and you and remember
0: that. That's insane because we played the same set twice. <laughs> it was like, well, we. Got, I think it was like six songs we had at that gig. We didn't even have eight In, into the set list of. I've got the set list somewhere from Raw from um, the Warp Tour, and it was eight songs. But I think that pub. I can't remember the name of the pub. My sister would know. But yeah, Surrey Hills. We drank them out of beer. Their kegs emptied. They were basically giving us like bourbon and scotch at the end of the night at beer prices because we had there was no beer left.
1: What's well, so call it called the Hollywood? Something fucking fuck, up. Fuck, I remember. and Yeah, and I remember. And you went, we're just going to play our set yeah, again. Yeah, it's and like, everyone, if you don't mind, like, we're fuck. just
0: going to do it again. And everyone
1: everyone's went, like, fuck
0: yeah. <laughs> <And I'm> like- <laughs> it's like, well, that was, that was the big test for us. Because I was like, all you guys, everyone we knew, no one had listened to this shit before you know what I mean? I'd never get, and no one, I'd only have a small group of friends that would come to my hardcore show because I had my hardcore friends who dabbled in a bit of skateboarding. Then I had my skateboard friends who dabbled in a bit of hardcore. There was no real, I was the mix in the, you know, they were both as important to me sort of thing. Um, but then when we played this, people were like, well, I don't know this, this is fucking uplifting and this is cool. I'm just going to come. We had so many people come to our shows over the years that didn't like swing music, but they just loved the sluggers. So it was like – but, yeah, that day, that was like a fucking eye-opener. We were like, holy shit. So everyone's loving it. People are bleeding outside. Like the venue was full. It was capacity. People were outside just drinking on the street, listening to us. And we're like, well, let's do the set again. And then, yeah, when we did walk Tour the following year, because Cherry Pop and Daddy's another massive swing band in America, they played the following walk Tour. We were on the support van truck, and it blew people away. People were like, fuck. And then it just took off. Like it was just we are gigging every week. For like you know nine years or something, it was. I
1: remember, and I remember insane. seeing you on stage at the Warp Tour, going, "Holy shit!" Like, I mean, you and I were never great friends, acquaintances, but I just remember going, "Oh my god, Glenn Scott's up on stage at the Warp Tour!" <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, and I used to be like, oh, "I know his brother." You know yeah, yeah. Like, his it was brother's brother. Mahomie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, but it's so nice, and then I mean, we played, um, we played the one at. Duller as well. Walked to down that. there. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. That was on the side of a truck as well. That was nuts because I had Bill Stevenson from The Descendants, or all I think were playing that day. My God. He was oh, – we're setting up and he rocks up and he's standing next to me. He goes, what are you playing? I said, I'm playing drums. And I said, you're going to stand there and watch me. He's like, okay. And he stood there and watched like five songs. And I was like, this is nuts. My drum hero standing there watching me play. Like it was fucking insane. Um, and that was like the first couple of years. And then Walk to was just – dropped off, which sucked, you know what I mean? Because everything, like I said, everything changes. But um, yeah, we did some pretty massive gigs. We did Australian tours, like Royal Crown Review. So the band that started our band got us to start. They came to Australia. We toured a two-week tour with them. And still to this day, Danny Glass, the drummer, is like a good mate of mine, you know what I mean? Like we just, like it was back to that thing of you don't have to know the band, but if your favourite band asked you to go on tour with them and you became mates with them, that's the situation that we were in. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be my band. You, you can appreciate. You, can, you know where I'm coming from. If you say, "Oh yeah, my favourite band come to town and wants to take us on tour for two weeks," and they did that three times. You know what I mean? Three trips to Australia, and it was just the Sluggers and Royal Crown Review traveling around. It was
1: fucking insane. <clears throat> Isn't it amazing what grows out of passion?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's it. We didn't. We didn't. We we made money to survive, but we weren't a, a band that profited. You know what I mean? And it was like, we were all just musicians. And it's the same. I think that's why music and skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding, all these action sports and music have such a connection because one can't survive without the other, I don't think. Um, you know, music has a lot of different sort of fans, but musicians are as passionate about what they do as skaters and surfers and motocross and BMX and all, all the sports that we do. It's the same passion involved. And like you say, like what it's amazing what comes out of passion. You didn't start skateboarding mm. to make money, did you? You didn't start surfing to make money. Did you did it because it was sick.
1: Mm.
0: I played drums because I, was, I, because I sat on the floor with a bunch of pots and pans when I was three years old and I, apparently there's a photo of me laying them out like a drum kit with a wooden spoon and a wooden fork banging on them. My mum's right. like, I think we should mm. get him a drum kit when he's a bit older. You had it. rhythm. I just had natural rhythm, yeah. I can't play anything else. I've got drummers that are am- mates of mine that are amazing and they can play bass and guitar and keyboards and shit. I can't fucking do anything. I can only do drums.
1: You discovered where your skill sets lied, and you yeah. follow. And you followed that. Is that the kind of advice you you give as a parent to your
0: yeah top? yeah my 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 kid's pretty ridiculously talented. Um, I've tried her with everything. She oh fuck, she's gonna her drawing skill. If I had her drawing skill when she, if I had her five year old drawing skill now, I would be making money out of it because. I don't. Me and my wife are like, how can she? Where's this coming from? Because she's so good, right? Like her her, everything that she does, we're just pushing her. You know what I mean? We have this joke of like she's probably going to grow up to be an accountant or something. And it's like she can sing, she can write songs, she comes up with like songs on the spot. She can dance, she can act, she she makes her own films, like short films and stuff. She's done animation films. Um, She's a really good drawer. She can skate. She can play drums. Like everything I just sort of like God damn Like the talent involved So we're just pushing her Towards whatever she's Passionate about If she's into this Cool Let's go to mm-hmm. that Like she gave up Didn't give up skating But didn't skate for a while And then you know In lockdown and shit It's like what can you do We went to a skate park She's like I want to skate again dad Because my friend at school skating Is like All right, cool Let's go to the skate park And took him. And they're both like Yeah this is sick Let's get into this again You know what I mean So yeah We're pushing her passion To wherever it wants to go mm-hmm. But um Yeah she's a talented Little mofo That's for sure
1: I want to just go back a little bit. When you were the team manager of the clothing brand SP Because yeah. for those that are unaware, that was huge in Australia, Massive. and they they also they were a streetwear company. And it wasn't just skateboarding; it was like surfing and snowboarding, I think yeah. Motorbike motocross yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Were you managing? athletes from other disciplines like we we or was it just the skateboarding aspect
0: no no so when it so i was working at a skate shop that i helped set up um a skate music store and then you know blair heath great mate of ours one of the manly boys um he was working in the warehouse at SMP, and and he goes i think they they're looking for a team manager for skateboarding and um, he recommended me. And I didn't know anyone. I didn't know Shane Moran, who was the surf team manager, marketing guy at the time. Um, and they had a couple of dudes on the team and they like, "They and I, they got me in. This is how early this was. One of the questions in the interview was, do you know how to email? <laughs> Can you imagine me being asked that question now in an interview? And I was like, nah, but I'm sure I'll learn. And I was like, I've never sent an email before in my life. So that's the era that it was. It was like 98 or something. It was insane. And um, so I got in there and it was like, yeah, you got to manage the skateboarders. And we basically I put team packs together for surfing and skating and they had some snowboarders and they managed a couple of bands. And after about a year or two into it, I was the skate team manager, the motocross team manager, the music team manager, and the snowboard team manager. And the snowboard thing dropped off a bit because it wasn't that very, very lucrative money-wise. And I built the skate team. It was like my main focus was to build a really good skate team, really good music setup and a really good motocross team and Shane, my partner there at the time, um, was looking after the surfing. And he was a, he's like, you know, the map stone or the devo of surfing. Everyone knew who he was, you know what I mean? And it was like, so he was instantly credibility. So when I started, they were like, well, you got to have credibility because people are going to have to want to come and skate for us. I'm like, trust me, mate, I'll put the fucking team together and they'll come. And we did, we put together one of the sickest teams, you know what I mean? Like to, to basically to rival Volcom, like mm. Volcom, the era after us, which was the Volcom, Louis Marnell, um, you know, Shane Cross era, that was after us, um, after S P fell apart because of stupid ownerships. But, dude, like, you know, Margaritas, mm. Curry, Caney, Bonham, Fowley, Duncan, Corbin Harris. Mm. Um, fuck, I hate to leave someone out. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like, there was so many dope people on our team. And then it was like, well, let's travel, you know what I mean got to travel the world with with a skateboard company that made clothing you know what i mean like it was sick
1: it's funny that you compare it to volcom because i remember back in the day like volcom was like it was bigger than volcom in australia oh yeah I mean, it was in massive australia, in australia anyway and, totally yeah you know it's interesting that that maybe <clears throat> the business direction of it fell down it wasn't because of a lack of um i guess buy-in by the the riders or or the actual culture behind it, it was just you think it was more the business side of things, yeah. The better. one of
0: the one of the main things, so yeah, S M P was bigger than Volcom worldwide without a doubt, sort of thing. Um, and
1: Which is crazy because Volcom's huge now, yeah,
0: and that's it. And every time, and it, it's so the guy who started SP in Australia ended up buying S M P worldwide, right? Um, and that's where the problem started. And it was like you know, like he's getting investments from people to build the company, and he was going to buy a house instead of putting the money into the company. And the company started every time a failure from SMP. Every time SMP mm-hmm. failed, Volcom got bigger. And it was like I remember when I got we moved to Melbourne from Sydney, so we got married, and my wife's from England, and we got married, and we moved to Melbourne. I was still working for SMP in Sydney, and a couple of months later, they were like, "Oh, we can't." This like November, I think. And I was like, oh, and new owners come in and, like, they were were going, oh, we're going to take it to China because there's the same amount of people in Shanghai that there is in Australia. And I was like, yeah, but there's five people that skate there. Like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? You can't just go off population, you idiot. But he just said, oh, we can't pay anyone until April next year. I was like, well, the whole team quits. He goes, oh, we'll tell them to hang on. I was like, no, I'm telling you now, the whole team will quit on the spot. I can't have people ride for us that you're not paying that you were – because they're professional skateboarders. This is like, Mark, like I said, Margaritas, Andrew Curry, Jake Duncan, these guys were pro skateboarders. And it's like, and you're going to tell them that you're not going to pay them for four months and just to hang in there? And I was like, no. Nah. So I rang Peanut at Volcom straight away. I said, these, this is what's happening. Grab these guys before they get somewhere else. And he's was like, cool. And he grabbed Jake straight away. And it was like, and that was the era then that Volcom took over. So they had Jake, Shane Cross, Chris Wood, Shane Azar, Dustin, Dustin, Louis, Marnell, Dustin,
1: Dolan. Yeah, Dustin yeah.
0: Louis Marnell. Dustin, 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 Louis Marnell. And that no became way. that fucking team. And it was because of an SMP stuff up, made Volcom bigger. Not, not taking anything away from Volcom being an amazing brand. And Peanut was amazing at marketing that brand. You know what I mean? And now Azar doing the exact same thing and killing it. But... They, Vulcan just knew to be way cooler than what SMP was. Like in the long run, they knew their roots to stick to their roots. But because SMP, the owner wanted to make money faster than he needed to, he brought in people that didn't have, in, didn't, that had no interest in the company. And now where is it? It's nothing. It's, I saw it at some <clears throat> fucking discount store in Melbourne years ago. And it's like, Did, just was, embarrassing. This a, was
1: this an era before companies actually realised the true value of having team riders um, Australian team riders.
0: I think we we sort of pushed that a bit because we were doing three tours a year, local Australian tours a year, like skateboard tours, and people weren't doing that. It was only you'd have remember you'd have the Easter tour. Koala would bring out the Easter demo, or Hardcore would put on an Easter demo, and that was it. It was Easter. What else? Because all the American companies tour America in and Europe in July, June, July, August, like their summer. And then our summer, it's winter, so we might get a couple of visitors, you know what I mean, come over. But like there was no tours. So we really emphasised on getting local skateboarders to local skate parks. So we go, okay, we're going to Perth for two weeks. And we'd tour Perth and it was fucking huge. And all of a sudden, all the sales in Perth blew up. We're gonna go do New South Wales, country New South Wales, all the New South Wales tours were. So they started seeing the benefits of us doing these tours. And it wasn't a matter of whether the people knew who the skateboarders were or not. It was the fact that we showed up to the local park and we gave out stickers and t shirts and shit. And the kids were stoked on it. And then they wanted to go buy more. So they'd go to the local shop. And we did that for like, you know, six years and it was fucking huge. And SMP became huge in skateboarding because of that. Because before that, it was a surf snowboard company that dabbled in a bit of skateboarding. And then it flipped to become a skateboard company that dabbled in a bit of snowboarding and surfing. You know what I mean? So yeah, we really pushed the emphasis on the Australian skateboarding scene and how big it was and how it could benefit a company.
1: Sounds like a tough gig though. It would have been tough.
0: It was, it was good, but the, the, our immediate managers respected what we did. It was their job to convince the owners as to what, where we were spending money. You know what I mean? But we'd, I mean, every tour we did was like co-sponsored, but we'd get a shoe company or a sunglass company involved, you know what I mean? And be like, right, give us four grand for this trip and we'll put your logo on our ads, you know? And they're like, yeah, sweet. So, you know, you'd get it funded from someone else. Um, But look, even to the point where I took Jake and Jamie Goodwin and Corbin to Europe for a month and we did the Europe circuit and Jake Duncan got introduced to the world. You know what I mean? He was 14 and it was, everyone was like, who is this little bastard who was just a little shit, but- (laughs) such a good fucking skateboarder and that was it and like we i remember hanging out with the New york dudes um you know it was like the harold hunter era and like jeff pang was the team manager me and pang are hanging out and the whole New york team are there and they're just sort of like who's this little dirtbag he's rad but god he needs to shut up but it was like it set him up for his career you know what i mean it like introduced jake to the world because all the americans were over in europe and then Jake went back, and I think it was two years after that that S and P fell apart. And then Jake went over the next year, and you know, part of Volcom, and then started touring America, and that you know, that's where people's careers took off. But yeah, it was all from us pushing the local touring thing that ended up going well. We can push it internationally as well. So,
1: and I think I mean, in effect, paved the way for the generations to follow of like yeah. good skateboarders. Yeah, you know? we
0: did. We sort of set up a blueprint. I remember when Fish started work for DC. Um, and they were doing the same thing. And, that, and like Kaza was really helping out along with the, with the marketing of it. But they were like, it got to the point where we, we were just before the era of you couldn't do a demo now without having public liability insurance. So then we get to the end of it. And me, and, I remember me and Margaritas, who were living together in Balmain, he was talking to me and we're like, we should just say we're going here to skate. Come and skate with the SMP team. So there was no demo we're just going there to skate. So we didn't have to come up with public liability because all the councils would be like, Well, what's your public liability? And blah, blah, blah. And we're like, Man, we don't fucking have that. We're going to skate. And we're going to <laughs> hand out shit to kids. Like, what are you talking about? So then we started this whole thing of come and skate with us. And then, you know, it, it had to continue on. And Fish continued it on with DC. It was like come and skate with a DC team. And so basically the guys would go there and do a demo and the kids would get to skate with them. And that was it. And they just pushed it. But yeah, it did set the sort of benchmark for a lot of travelling, um, local travelling, and how it could really benefit local companies and stuff, you know what I mean, not relying on just being international.
1: It's so interesting, man. Yeah. I just love
0: that. I love hearing these stories. It was good times, so, man.
1: So you live in Melbourne now? Yep. Um, How'd you end up in Melbourne from Sydney?
0: I met my wife in Sydney through a mutual friend, um, and we hung out for over a Christmas holiday period for about a month or something. And, you know, she went back home to England. And we thought, well, let's try it. We did a long-term relationship, long-distance relationship um, for a year. And then she came back here for a year with her sister to live in Sydney. And they spent three of those months in Melbourne. Um, and then they went back home. And then I went over there. And then I, I did a Europe tour after that and I got engaged. And then the next year we got married and my wife said, if I'm going to move to Australia, we're moving to Melbourne. I went, all right that's cool. <laughs> I didn't think anything of it. I was like, yeah, cool. Um, and that was it. And we ended up down here. It was sort of like, it was hard at first cause we didn't have anyone else and my wife couldn't work at first. Um, I was still, you know, skating quite a bit and being a bit of a shit husband and leaving her alone quite a bit that I learned my lesson not to do. Um, not really being empathetic of her situation, but you know, we we've been through ups and downs like every family, but we've, we've hung in there and we've, finally found a good friendship base and we're, we're Melbourne bound, you know what I mean? Like I'm a Sydney boy to the day I die, but I couldn't see myself living there again. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm down here. I'm happy with what I've got. Um, we got good friends and, you know, yeah, we just, we just made it work. And it was funny because when I moved down there, then Todd Webster moved down, you know, like rest in peace, who's one of my best mates of all time. He moved down. So that was like a taste of home. You know what I mean? Corbyn come and lived with us for a year. That was a taste of home. Then Fish moved down. Then Blair moved down. And then it was like, oh, all the boys are here. So fuck Sydney. I'm <laughs> and then Jono moved down. It's like all these crews here. It's like I don't need to go anywhere. Now they've all gone. Uh, <laughs> they've all gone elsewhere. But um but yeah it was like this is our base now so we're 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 Melbourne peeps I guess
1: Yeah what's the, what's one of the major differences you know in lifestyle compared to Sydney
0: I think well <coughs> fr- fr- okay. from a Sydney point of view <laughs> There's no Melbourne Sydney rivalry. From a Melbourne point of view, there's a real heavy Sydney Melbourne rivalry. And um, John Finlay said it perfectly once in the um, another RIP, the fucking man Finn. In that, remember that, um, what was it called? Tic tac to heel flip or whatever, that hardcore doco? And Finlay said it perfectly. He was going – because the, the, the boys, the, the, um, the hardcore dudes asked Fin, what do you think about the Melbourne-Sydney rivalry? He goes, there is no rivalry. Melbourne guys are just pissed off that our girls are better looking than this. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that was – it was just sort of like just in a nutshell, just, just took the piss out of it sort of thing. But um, every time we – because we used to play gigs down here a lot when I was living in Sydney. And every time I come down here, it was just sort of like there was no judgment – there was less judgment in Melbourne than there was in Sydney. Because we'd be walking around the street in pinstripe suits and, you know, pointy shoes and all this sort of shit. And people would just be like, yeah, cool. If you did that in Sydney, people would be like, what the fuck are you wearing, dude? And I was like, why does it matter what I'm wearing? You know what I mean? So when we Melbourne to me is a lot cooler in the city than Sydney is. And I'm going to piss some people off with this, but I've lived in both cities and I've played in both cities and I've worked in both cities and Melbourne is more accepting of differences than I think Sydney is. That's my outtake on it.
1: Would you say there's more of a creative hub there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think in Sydney everything's more spread out. Where in Melbourne you can walk to everywhere and you can get a tram from one district to another. And it is a creative hub. You know what I mean? Like I don't like to say it's the people say it's the sporting capital of Australia. <laughs> I don't think it is. I think Sydney's still the sporting capital of Australia. But um because I don't follow AFL and I never will. Um
1: <laughs> stupid. I was actually, I was gonna ask you that, you know, nah. being a rugby league player. Nah,
0: man. No. Nah. Sixteen, seventeen years I think we've been here now and it's like nope
1: can not do it.
0: Can't do it, nope. I just don't get it. I'm just not into it. Dude. And people all the time, like, because, you know, people don't know that you're from Sydney and you just, you meet someone and, like, oh, what team do you follow? And I go, the Tigers. And they go, oh, Richmond. I go, no, no, be our main Tigers, mate. They <laughs> go, oh, rugby. I'm like, no, not rugby, rugby league, mate. Rugby's a different game. That's another thing down here. People don't realise the difference between two games. But, yeah, Melbourne is, I think, a more accepting city and more creative Um, more accepting of creativeness than I th- than what I experienced in Sydney. I could be wrong about Sydney now. I'm not going to say because I haven't been there for 15 years, but I'm just saying it's it's my experience.
1: Right, man. Mm. Remember, I was in Melbourne once when the state of origin was on, and yeah. I swear to God, we went to every pub in Melbourne trying to find a place that had it on the TV.
0: Can't do it.
1: I it was like, I was like, what fucking country am I in right now? I like, yeah, don't even. And they didn't even know what this. I and mean, I get it because it's like New South Wales and Queensland. Yeah. But- but it's just funny. It's like my first wake-up call. Like, oh, holy shit! Maybe the this is the AFL world, The world doesn't revolve around like <laughs> the world doesn't revolve around the
0: state of origin, like. <laughs> But no, see, that's – okay, another thing too. So, um, you know, Ma- Anthony Mapstones a, a, was a – well, not necessarily a league fan, but he understood it. And me, him and Todd, every state of origin, would be looking – we're in Richmond where I lived and we're looking for a pub. It's the pub capital of freaking Melbourne. And we, we – I remember we went to a pub and the game was on at 11 o'clock at night because it wasn't live. It was on 11 o'clock at night. We go into this pub. There's two people in the pub. There's a massive screen on and the tennis is on. And I said, can you put the rugby league on? He goes, oh, it's on that small screen over there. I was like, yeah, but there's three of us here. We're about to drink you dry if you put it on the big screen. He's like, oh, well, well, they, they're watching the tennis. And I looked at these people. I said, are you watching the tennis? They're like, nah. And I go, well, do you want to watch the rugby league? And they go, yeah. Can you explain it to us? I'm like, yeah, righto. So I was like, to convince a publican at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night to we're going to stay here and drink if you put the footy on, and they were just dead set against it. It's like, what are you, Why are you against this fucking game? So we ended up going to the Melbourne Storm pubs because they were the only ones that were playing rugby league. But now, I mean, I've been to MCG to 95,000 people at the fucking, at the state of origin. So it's a bit different.
1: Epic, epic, man. Well, listen, Glenn, man, it's been so epic. I just, I've just had a smile on my face the whole (laughs) time. Like, and it's amazing. Like the memories you've churned, you churned out of me and probably for yourself. Yeah,
0: you brought them up. Yeah, dude.
1: Um, I love, I love it, man. um, I guess my last question for you is like, you know, I know you've had some back injuries and you had back surgery recently and, you know, you're working, you know, at the blood bank. That's the blood bank, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's
0: officially called Red Cross Lifeblood now. So, yeah, yeah, it was the blood service.
1: What's next for you? Like, where where do you think think you're going?
0: Well, Rad Dads is getting steadily bigger. I always like to do stuff with that. I want to... Pandemic sort of put a dampener on a few um, ideas that we had coming up over the the last couple of years. Um, we had our ten year anniversary last year, and I really wanted to do like an, an art show for Beyond Blue or someone, but um, that fell apart, and obviously this year it 's not happening again so hopefully, in the future I want to do i 've got like speaking of people that are, are down like you know jeremy Ray, Steve Caballero. Nathan Gray from a band called Boy Sets Fire, Tim from Rise Against. These dudes are keen to do art for a rad dad's art show. And I'm like, okay, this is fucking cool um and then on top of that local artists you know what i mean like some of the, the rad dudes around here sid Tapia, and you know um some of our boys that are all dads the whole theme is to have dads do artwork on skateboards that's my whole Just, thing on a, right? on
1: a side note yeah. sid Tapia's artwork oh dude my seriously God, i
0: dude. was showing. so my daughter says who's the guy that can draw the sneakers and i'm like yeah him right because i'm she's like i was showing her how he can go from you know Doing um, stencil work and calligraphy because his mum was a calligrapher, um, doing stencil work and calligraphy into like these massive 20 foot size murals of rugby league players and shit. You know what I mean? And it was like, and it's just, he's just a talented bastard. But to have guys like that stoked on on Rad Dad's Club and involved and ambassadors and all that sort of stuff. So I do want to do something for. Like, my whole thing was to do an art show where, you know, you'd, the, the, you'd sell boards, sold artwork done by famous people, whether the musicians, mm-hmm. snowboarders, mm-hmm. skaters, surfers, and so on. Um, and then, you know, profits would go to something that I believe in, like Are You OK or Beyond Blue or anything that's sort of prostate cancer, anything that's male associated. Um, because a lot of people don't. The Are You OK Day is a big thing for me as well, um, sort of veering towards that topic. It's a big thing for me because. You'd know as well, but we've lost some really close friends to suicide over the years. And I've lost three best mates, Borko, Jono from Borko, Finos and Todd to suicide. And it's just, it's not on. You know what I mean? One is too many sort of thing. So I'm always a big advocate of RUAK Day. We always do a big thing. Now at Red Cross, we do a big thing at work. that I organise with, with my team and everything. Um, but I've always wanted to do a Rad Dad's Barbecue and it's never happened. And I want to do... We did it probably about five years ago we did it, and we had one in Sydney, one in Melbourne, and one in Queensland, but they weren't that big, and it wasn't that well-organised, so I want to do a big R okay Day barbecue. So I don't think I'm going to be able to do it this October, but I really want to do something next year, hopefully, when we're, we're living with this bloody pandemic that's going on. Um, but, yeah, look, that's it. Look, I'm, you know, um, <clears throat> my wife's very active in her... Um, fashion community she's a a stylist and a recycler and a very 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 fucking cool woman um follow style shifter on instagram um and my daughter's a talented little mofo like i said before and we're going to push her into everything that she wants to do and i'll just keep working and you know working for the red cross is very important to me um it's a great job i say to people which they a great team that i work for but i say to them this is the second best job i've ever had and they're like, what? what do you mean second best? I was like, well, sorry, SMP, I travelled the world and just filmed skateboarding, so you can't really beat that. But this is like the next best one because it, it, mm. we're making a difference, you know what I mean? Like it's rad. We we supply blood, to, mm. we're the, the, the pin to supply blood and products to hospitals that need it, you know what I mean? So very important situation. But, dude, we're just cruising along, happy with what I'm doing. Rad Dad's, like I said, is building and um, trying to get my knees a bit better, my left knee's been operated on six times over the last 20 years. So I'm trying to get that a bit better and skate a bit more. And
1: yeah. Rad Dads feels like a movement to me. And um, I feel like they're, it it, kind of has this sort of underlying theme of men's health and men's mental health incorporated into it. Um, And I, I think that's, I think that you are aware of that as well. And I think we do need more of it statistically Males are overrepresented in suicide in our country, and I think globally, Um, we have the the Movember movement that happens every November, um, and it raises awareness around men's mental health. Uh, However, you know we can never have too much of it. I think we need more, and I just love how you know you've you've sort of you're nurturing that that theme of. Of men's health and men's men's sustainability. I mean, we um I I see a lot of men struggling and I see a lot of men struggling to talk about their feelings. About struggling. About struggling, you know. And I think like someone such as you, you know, ex rugby league player, you know, ex rugby league player, you know, skateboarder, musician. And then willing to willing to have these conversations, man, I think it's so powerful. So thank you.
0: Yeah, I'd like to have something under my belt like a Movember. You know what I mean? I'd like to have – and I can see it happening in the future, but I'd like to have like a Rad Dad's Day. You know what I mean? Like something like that where it's – I mean, we've got Father's Day coming up soon. It's a simple thing. I and mean, this is not – I'm not – float my own boat or whatever, but like <coughs> Father's Day is coming up. So I put everything on my web store at 40% off. It's brand new shit. I don't need to, but it's like, well, that's my give back to the dads. Here's some cheap shit for you. You know what I mean? It's like, it's Father's Day, celebrate, be a rad dad and show it off. You know what I mean? And then like, I I, I don't need to do it, but it's just something I'm trying, little things like that, trying to make dads feel a part of it. But yeah, I would like to do a Rad Dad's Day barbecue, Rad Dad's Club barbecue, whatever it may be on an annual basis nationally pushing globally sort of shit. So obviously THT will have to help with that aspect and getting the word out there. You know what I mean?
1: i man. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's it. Oh, and absolutely. the funny thing is
0: too, people are so willing to help because they're all involved in it. You know what I mean? Like we're both dads. We know what it means. And I can go to, and that's why I think when it's, it's incredible to us that we have skaters and musicians that are idols to us, so to speak, that are down for us because they're in the same boat. They're like, yeah, I'm a dad. You know what I mean? I know what you're going through. Let's do it. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be a, you're going through bad times. It's just I appreciate what you're going through because I've done it, so let's, you know, I'm backing you sort of thing. So,
1: yeah. And and it's a tough gig. Yeah, it is. It's a tough gig and it's dynamic and people's situations can change. and uh... Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I love it, man. I love what you do. Now, listen, I ask all guests to come to the podcast with a cause they want to support or advocate for. However, I kind of feel like you've already done that. <laughs>
0: Sorry, man. <laughs>
1: so, what I'm going to do, Glenn, if um, in this episode's show notes, if you scroll down, I'm going to put links to Are You Okay Day, Beyond Blue. Any other ones I haven't remember? Prostate having- cancer.
0: Wait, um, let me just
1: jot this down. Yeah. Yep.
0: I normally do that because I normally do dry July, and that's who I do that for is the prostate right. cancer. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing like things like that. It's not hard to do. Just, just do it. You know what yeah.
1: I mean? And um, there'll be links to the Rad Dads Club website. And how, how else can people support or follow the things you do? Like, um, just-
0: Instagram, we're on Rad Dads Club. There's a lot of Rad Dads and Rad Dad and blah 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 on Instagram, but we are the only Rad Dads Club on Instagram and Facebook. Yes,
1: yes sir. Um,
0: we're the club, y'all. And yeah, that's you know, it's basically it. Okay. Yeah, what about s-
1: subscribe to the Tilt Channel on YouTube?
0: Yeah, Tilt Channel's taken a, a back seat at the moment, but um, I am going to because look, look, that's one of my biggest passions is filming. You know what I mean? It started from when I couldn't skate and I had to go out with the boys, so I picked up a video camera. And started mm-hmm. filming. And then from there, I've, and I've always been a big believer in behind the scenes. The, the interview series I did on there caught off the wood with some skaters like Brophy and Azar and, you know, yeah, and Sid and Jake it. and stuff like that. All that's up there still to see, but I really want to push that a lot more. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer of, you know, I can type in Andrew Brophy into Google and see skateboard footage, but what makes him tick? So go to Tilt Channel and you'll find out, you know what I mean? So Tilt Channel TV at YouTube. Um,
1: yeah. I love it I love it I watched the Andrew and Brophy one And um, you're an amazing interviewer And I think I, I I kind of feel like You are qualified to start an Australian skateboarding podcast You know uh, You have that, you I was, have we're that quali- about, We were talking you about this me. the other
0: day I was, it's, like, yeah. that's, it's so weird for me to be on this end of it Because I don't I don't think I've ever been interviewed before I'm always doing the interviews um, And it was cool When you reached out to me I was like Fuck what am I going to That's weird <laughs> like all right, but it's like I suppose I've done a lot of shit, so why not? Why not You've talk about great. it? But yeah,
1: and you'll you'll um you'll find those links uh, in this episode's show notes. Uh, you can find this uh, episode on a variety of platforms other than the one you're listening to on right now. Um, so if you visit terriblehappytalks.com dot com. Um, there's a, a plethora now of, of episodes you can listen to. Some with skateboarders, some with artists, musicians, surfers. Um, we've just had the website completely rebuilt, so go and check it out. Um, you can also find this episode on all the major podcast platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, uh, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. And I think there's another one, but I forget. But whatever whatever platform you like to listen on, you know, subscribe, leave a review, and it just helps me to keep producing weekly episodes so I can speak to legends such as Mr. Glenn Scott. Thanks, homie. Thank you, sir. Dude, I love you, man. It's oh, good to see one you. One more thing. I've, yeah. got more. I've got something else for you. I've got some gifts for you, bro. Really? So, yeah, our friends at IndoSoul will send you a pair of. Um, flip-flops or slides made from repurposed motor vehicle tyres. So, uh, they give every guest a pair of uh, shoes. And um, I'm going to see if I can hook up a, a pair for your wife as well.
0: Yep. Yeah, who works in
1: sustainable fashion, yeah? Yes,
0: man. Yes. She's yeah, she's all about so, recycling and sustainability and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So I'll hit him up to get a second pair. And a big shout-out to Nick Riley from uh, Indosol uh, ANZ for for helping with the support. And also Indosol Worldwide, uh, Kai Paul and Kyle Parsons, who – um, started supporting the show back in episode 33. So they've, they've been so supportive, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, and yeah, bro, I think that's it. We're done.
0: Sick, dude.
1: Ew. So I'll get you to stay on the line for a minute, man. Love you, yeah, Thanks, Lovely Shannon. you, brother. Yes. <laughs> So before we kick off the podcast, I just want to talk about getting your morning kick in Belmont Coffee. Belmont is owned by skaters, barbers, traders, and musicians. They came together with the idea of creating a co-pilot that's next to you on the late night drives, early mornings on the job site, or a midday pick-me-up. Ethically sourced beans in a sustainable can and ready to go when you are. Use the code THT to score a discount at belmont.com. That's Belmont, B-E-L-L-M-O-T dot com.